In this Better Together podcast, I had the pleasure of engaging in a conversation with Dr. Marim Butla. Marim is a Swiss-Moroccan, nationalized American who, of many things, has a PhD in brain and cognitive sciences. As you'll learn from this conversation, Marim's identity is multidimensional, and she has a non-dominant worldview, which I felt was really great for us to explore the topic of intersectionality which when you think in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion is a really important part of it, but an often overlooked part of an DNI strategy. And so I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Marim. I learned quite a bit and um, I'm sure you will as well. Have fun. So Marim, so great to have this conversation with you. Uh, thanks for joining me. And uh, I think I'm a better person to have this conversation with. To get things kicked off. So, uh, yeah, just to give a little context, Marim, I'd love for you to introduce yourself and tell people more about a little bit about your background before we go too deeply. But uh, I've known Marim for a number of years now. I can, I would say you're probably one of the smartest people that I know on earth. Uh, when I think of you, I think of omniscious because it's almost like there's not much that you don't know. And I appreciate your wisdom. So I'm sure people after this conversation will realize why I'm saying that. And so, Maria, why don't you just give us a little background? Tell us a little bit about who you are. And I'd love to kind of start with where you are right now and what you're doing, because I think our story will kind of work back to this point eventually. So. Thank you so much, Tony, for having me here and for your um, your glowing introduction. I hope to be able to deliver at least 20% uh, of that. Uh, there are lots of things that I don't know, but I'm happy to share some of the things I've picked up along the way in my uh, cross-sector and cross-continental uh, journey so far. So a little bit more about me. Um, uh, I, uh, I love this conversation about uh, starting with one dimension of, of diversity. I'm a woman. Uh, I always say that I'm straight, but not narrow. And my background started by being born biracial. And so that started with uh, this constant, like, where am I? Who, where do I fit? And, um, and uh, I applied this to myself and now apply this to a number of, of other people. So for you to uh, start with where I am today, uh, it's always a little complicated with me because I, I'm always doing many things and multiple things at once. So right now, I'm a career coach at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service where I coach both students and alums from our master's program as they get clear, uh, get connected, and then get hired and have an impact in a number of different uh, career paths, uh, government and multilaterals, of course, as it's an international relations focused um, uh, program, but also many are in the nonprofit and private sector. I also teach social entrepreneurship at the University of Maryland, and I have on the side my own uh, diversity and inclusion and startup uh, type of consulting firm called Cognaction. And Cognaction was my little play on word as I'm a recovering neuroscientist uh, focused on cognitive neuroscience. I wanted to relate the science of learning and the science of uh, rewiring your brain towards action. So Cognaction comes uh, from that. It's a pleasure to be here today and uh, to have this conversation with you. Just want to put a caveat from the start that uh, the opinions are share are mine and my own. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, thank you so much. So I think when we first met, 
you had your own business. I think it was more than money careers or something like that. So mm -hmm. you've been on this kind of a pathway of working with people to find their passion best, especially when it's related to uh, like socially conscious opportunities. And it sounds like you've just taken that to another level and working at Georgetown. Um, give me a little, uh, give the folks a little bit of a background. So when, we, when I reached out to you, I had this topic of intersectionality because I think that's something that we don't talk about as much as we should as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I know you're a woman, you mentioned you're biracial, uh, you have this uh, background from another country. So just give us a little sense of, there's so many different dimensions of Marin. Can you just kind of give us a little bit of a touch on your background? Yes, thank you. And, and so I think that's why I, I love this conversation about intersectionality, because it means you're multidimensional and all of those dimensions show up all at once. So when we study them as unidimensional pursuits and what's the weight of that factor on you, what's that weight of that factor on others through your race, your religion, your gender and others, often companies and more broadly people among themselves fail to realize that they compound those different dimensions of diversity, either to boost you or impede your progress towards your goals. And so it's a very important conversation that uh, we need to have. And I bring a perspective from both my own lived experience, and I'll go a little bit more into my background, but also as a scientist. My PhD is in neuroplasticity. It's the science of learning. How does our brain rewire itself as a result of learning? And how do we combine emotion? And thoughts and beliefs into modeling and influencing our behavior, whether we are conscious of it or not. So, of course, a lot of our decisions, we hope to believe that we are rational, but the science is actually showcasing that we are very, very unaware of what drives and influence our behavior and our decisions based on our habits and based on the blinders that those habits uh, make us function through in most of our daily lives as adults. And so I'll start with the beginning of where I was born and how I went from that fascination for the brain to where I am today with the DNI journey. And so I was born, as I mentioned, to um, a Swiss German mother and a Moroccan dad in the French speaking part of Switzerland, about 30 minutes from Geneva. And I grew up in the project. So my dad never went to school and he was a carpet installer. And my mom was a German uh, from Basel, German uh, speaker. Uh, from Switzerland, and she was a cashier. So I grew up in, in the project and I saw uh, from my life that I was treated very differently than my brother, who was only one year older. And so I, I understood very quickly that your gender, at least in my home, not in my school system, but really in my home and what I was exposed to or not to by my, my dad and, and other uh, men in, uh, in my influencing lives, my uncle and others, um, was really determined by uh, my gender. And I understood that very early. And then the second piece is, of course, I have a conversation starter of a name that nobody can pronounce. And that in Switzerland became probable cause for me to be troubled. Right, because I wasn't from there, I wasn't from here, I have this conversation starter of a name, and um, 
and then I had to attend Quranic school on uh, Wednesday afternoon and Saturday when I was growing up. So I had all those patchwork experiences trying to dictate who I was, where I was not feeling anything but being from where I was born. So that sentiment of not fitting in by virtue of your name, your gender, or the way you present became very early uh, a source of curiosity for me. Why is it that some people are never asked where they're from? And why is it that I'm always asked where I'm from? <laughs> Although I was born here and I have the, the accent of that place, you know? Mm -hmm. And then how is it that I'm treated differently in the Quranic school than I'm treated in the normal school, like the everyday educational experience? And so I was... Uh, I was picking up very fast on things. And so I picked up different things. And I really realized very early in my life that school was teaching you how to accumulate knowledge. But knowledge and the acquisition of knowledge didn't lead people around me to do better. When they knew better, they don't necessarily do did better with that knowledge. So we were bombarded with, uh, you know, messages, don't do drugs. And yet in my neighborhood, there were people dealing in middle school. Mm. Uh, violence doesn't wow. solve anything. You were, you know, like bombarded with that. Yet there is domestic violence around me. And so there is this dissociation between what people know is right and what people do around you. That became really fascinating to me. But then uh, we didn't have money, we were low SES. And so after ninth grade, I left school uh, to do an apprenticeship, which is very prevalent in Switzerland to have a good grounding and the equivalent, if you will, of an associate degree. And I chose business administration because I had no idea what I wanted to do and this felt safe. So at the, at the, the Chamber of Commerce, I became a secretary and that was in 89, not to age myself or anything. And that's when the wall came down. Right. And so mm -hmm. I was coming of age, becoming a professional and seeing the wall came down, which for me was incredible because I had grown up with, you know, the U.S. and the USSR and we were squished in the middle. And there was this whole thing of mm -hmm. the USSR coming down, like democracy won and we are no, now postmodern and it's going to be democratic everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. You remember? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you yeah. remember that. Time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But all yeah. of a sudden we had that that really big deal of democracy has won, we're all gonna be better and uh, the world power is the US, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, I, I realized that the way we function on how our knowledge and our emotion come together to influence our thoughts or feelings and our decisions about how to proceed in different situations were really fascinating to me. And I really wanted to understand this. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go back and earn my GED and uh, then go back to university and study psychology because we can understand how emotions right. and how our thoughts kind of modulate our behaviors through understanding the mind. And then in my second year of university, well, let me backtrack because I decided to go to university in Belgium, not in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And I followed my boyfriend, so I went for love. But it was really <laughs> a reset in many ways because I extracted myself from all of the prejudice that I had lived when I was growing up. Because all of a sudden I was on a campus that was very cosmopolitan with people from everywhere in the world. 
and my name instead of being a probable cause became an interesting piece hmm. oh wow that's interesting where are you from instead of oh that's right. not from here and like you're right. a problem now right mm -hmm. and all of a sudden that became uh, a revelation that you know professors were open to my curiosity they were encouraging of my critical thinking they were uh encouraging me in my analytical thinking and abilities where I never felt that was something that I could do to its full extent when I was in Switzerland or in the path that I had in Switzerland. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden in Belgium was like a reset. And um, uh, I came to the US to got a, a full ride to come to the University of Rochester where I studied that into one of the, the, the neural system that is well known, which is language. Right. So my central question for my PhD was how the how does the brain rewires itself when the language you learn is not spoken and auditory, but visual and relies on your hands. So how, what is the comparison of the organization of a language structurally and functionally in the brain when it's American Sign Language versus English? Okay. And what is the extent of that neuroplasticity? So did really well, had the uh, great uh, um, uh, experiments and then went for my postdoc at Brown, looking at when neuroplasticity breaks down in Alzheimer's and early cognitive impairments when you're no longer able to. Now I want to apply what I know about the brain to help people be make better decisions. Mm -hmm. But people around me as scientists, they love to just study to understand. I have like, okay, I have to study enough to have a good grounding and then I have to apply it to right. help people get better. And so I decided that I was not going to be a traditional scientist. And so I said, okay, what are scientists, uh, neuroscientists doing if they don't like neuroscience research, which was a big mm -hmm. conundrum, of course, um, because I mean, it was 2001, 2003, there was not uh, LinkedIn at the time or any of those right. uh, full fledged online things that we have today to research <laughs> what uh, people are doing. So I really went back to square one and I said, okay, what are the core things that I'm really interested in? And it boiled down to success. Like, how do we define mm -hmm. success? You know, and they're really in psychology and in overall well-being literature, as you know, with Grace Places to Work, um, three different ways of defining success, or at least the three ones that I honed in on that I find more fascinating were A, uh, who are you going to pair up with and consider your life partner? Mm -hmm. Are you going to have kids? And if so, with that person or with whom, right? Because that's kind of a, one of the big commitments of life right. <laughs> and your legacy. And then how are you going to fund all of this, which comes back to professional success? Mm -hmm. And um, and I thought, okay, I know a lot about brain bugs and how our brain can work for or against us as we make decisions, how our emotions influence us and all of that stuff. And I saw a lot of students and early career professionals grappling with the same idea, which was either I go and sell my soul to a big corporation, will earn well, and will uh, have battles with my values at work, mm -hmm. or I follow my values and will leave paycheck to paycheck. And that's uh, a very prevalent yet outdated belief that a lot of right. young people still operate by, mm -hmm. right? And so yeah. I started looking at what were some of the brain bugs that were there and looked at uh, external locus of control, internal locus of control, and how we build our self-esteem and values. And 
you and I know because we early in our career wanted to follow the same version of success, which is I need to associate myself with a high reputation something. So for me, it was going to graduate school and all the way to the postdoc uh, at Brown. For you, it was being associated with big name companies, Allstate and others, mm -hmm. to kind of say, okay, I can do this. But then when you reach that level of success, you're like, eh, it's not what it cracked up to be or what I anticipated it would be with which led to my first company with Mark Albion, where we developed a triple fit process of what kind of jobs and, and tasks you want to accomplish, what kind of culture, sector, organizational culture, process procedures and colleagues, and what kind of industry would you like to be part of, and which dimension do you want to change or keep constant in your next job move so that you can keep being credible but articulate your value in uh, any of those contexts, having that version of success from the inside out, if you will, right. instead of yeah. that external factor. So that's yeah. what I've been doing in many ways uh, for the last uh, 17 years now. And how DNI and intersectionality fit into that is that, well, first off, if you uh, are diverse in any of the dimension and we can you know, spend hours talking about just dimensions of diversity, but we're just going to focus on the few ones uh, that I know you and I have talked more about. Mm -hmm. If you look at uh, gender, sexual identity, sexual orientation, and race, you can already fill, fill many books with how the intersectionality of those will impact your career choices, your career uh, promotion, and your credibility among mm -hmm. your, your colleagues and in the industry in general. So I inscribe that dimension of DNI and intersectionality as I help people clarify what they want to do, connect with like-minded uh, professionals and organizations so that they can get hired and add value to a context that fits uh, their, mm -hmm. their values, skills, and goals. Yeah, what an amazing story. Uh, if I can go back a bit and unpack some of the stuff I heard from you, because you mentioned mm -hmm. German mom, Moroccan dad, correct? Mm -hmm. A very uh, interesting, I think a wonderful first name that you have. So it must have been, uh, and, and you mentioned the curiosity that you had as a young, young child. Yeah. And I'm wondering, how do you navigate that? Because that's not an easy place to be. It's easy to feel like you're an outsider. Uh, we talk a lot about belonging. So what was that journey like for you being having all those different dimensions to your identity and yeah. when did you mm -hmm. when did you really realize that maybe there's a headwind that i'm up against that's making things a little bit more challenging for me and then how, how did you get through that really yeah so the 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 headwind came very clearly from my name at school or in other dimensions um it's so foreign and so unusual that people watch you or don't give you an opportunity to shine as much or uh, are just suspicious of what you can do or what you're going to say next, right? So that suspicion was very, very clear for me growing up in the 70s in French-speaking Switzerland. Very clear. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is an expression in the French-speaking part of Switzerland that drove me crazy from growing up to now. And it is, it is not done. So it's so homogeneous that, I mean, it's very clear what you can do and cannot do. And then you are very much going to be put back in line 
if you're if you're not fitting that box right mm -hmm. so i felt the headwind almost immediately and um that's why i was so happy to leave for belgium and where i felt that was really this reset button because it was the first time that i was weird and unusual but it was not a liability so mm. i always had the liability yeah. Uh, of having to prove myself, of having to prove that I was reliable, trustworthy, and everything above, right? Mm -hmm. And I still find that for my siblings, it's still something that has hindered their career to a, a very big degree. Right. Um, now, uh, speaking back about intersectionality, I still think that I could have significant headwinds but that my advanced education has really helped me mm -hmm. counteract and acted as a vaccine around that because I can articulate complicated things. I can uh, explain things. I have a track record now of having been effective as a, a higher education uh, professional, as a startup consultant, as a founder myself of a mission-driven startup. And I have enough social capital uh, in the US and around the world that it's not going to be as big an impediment anymore mm -hmm. to me, right? Yeah. But the headwind yeah. was very clear. And wow. I still think that, uh, I don't know if I went back to Switzerland mm -hmm. now because most of my capital is in the US and uh, how would it be for me to go back and readapt to the sense of a pie, it's not done mm -hmm. mode of, of thoughts. <laughs> Right. right. Yeah. Because I'm such yeah. a why not? Okay, let's do it. Why not? Right. right. And and that sense of a buy is kind of a, the barrier I have to push against by default. Yeah. Yeah. So help us understand. So you are certified in diversity, equity, inclusion, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Um, it makes sense why you're doing that. But what was the journey like and what really got you really interested in? You know, getting a certification in DE and I, and doing a little bit more of your work through the lens of diversity, equity, inclusion. Yeah. What, what was the inspiration mm -hmm. for you to do that? And and maybe there's a story you can share as well, because I remember you sharing a story where someone asked you a question, or you there was something that uh, someone asked you, curious to know how you would have any understanding of it, because they didn't really see you as someone of color. Is that yeah. sort of mm -hmm. close close to what the story was yeah, about? Yeah, it was close to yeah. the story indeed. So so um, two stories in, in that vein. So in Europe, and, and I will have to preface that, uh, that I left Europe in 99, right? So it's been a while. Um, but when I was there, I was never taken for a white person because I'm pretty, you know, I'm mixed, but I'm typical North African, which are not considered white in mm -hmm. Europe. And there is actually a lot of uh, explicit and implicit racism against um, people from North Africa. Okay, so then I arrive in the US and I go for STEM. And of course, you know, women in STEM, and I was so lucky because all of the researchers in my department were either men that were super strong allies or very powerful women that mm -hmm. took no crap from anyone. It was like, show me the data. And if my argument is better than yours, you better get out of the way because otherwise you're going to get steamrolled. Right. Right. And that for me was super reinforcing 
right? To say like, show me the data. And that became my modus operandi and I developed a very strong BS uh, detector and then a way to counteract that, sometimes with tact, sometimes without. It depends on <laughs> who I'm addressing. I love it. And basically I navigated those situations <laughs> intuitively, right? But I know about the brain and I know how it can warp us in what we say and do when we feel under stress and all those kinds of things, right? So I started mm -hmm. working with marginalized students, especially first gen, because they feel close to my heart when I was at Brown and international students. And uh, of course I graduated with my PhD in 2003, which was only a couple of years after September 11th. And there we saw uh, a ramping up of racist uh, attacks uh, and uh, hate uh, against uh, Muslims and people from the Middle East and North Africa. And um, during that time and afterwards, it was an interesting shift and I never knew whether I was changing physically or just the fact that I was hanging out with groups of people who were from a different caliber or a different background. But people started thinking that I was this cool Swiss from affluent Geneva and that I was probably the, the daughter of ambassadors or others, right? And right. so I started from the perception of people, they all said to me at some point or another that I was from a rich family and my parents were probably conservative Swiss. And so it was really funny for me because I'm, you know, first gen and I come from that, that, that background, but no, people put me in that box and it's probably the way I talked, the, where I worked and everything of, of those things. So, <laughs> so then as I age, I think I become, uh, you know, I don't know if it's how I dress or how I come across and all those things. It happened more and more often hmm. that people actually um, thought that I was uh, from, uh, uh, you know, uh, middle, uh, upper class background. And as you know, Amelie, right. my daughter is very fair skin with blue eyes. And so either people think that I'm the babysitter <laughs> or they, they, they know I'm her mom and therefore I must have more white in me than what is apparent in my right. very voluminous air, hair and other features that I carry with me every day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what became interesting to me. It's like in America, I'm really considered white, but in Europe, I'm never considered white. Mm -hmm. And then in a meeting where I was with a colleague from a marginalized background, we we're talking about diversity of dimension in the events that we create. Mm -hmm. And I remember very clearly that uh, uh, there were examples of diversity with Latinos, with Middle Eastern and others. And so when she made a statement about there was no diversity on some of our pan on our panels, then as a scientist, I'm like, well, actually in the panel that I organized, there were evidence of X, Y, Z. And, and I just want to make sure we define diversity in the same way. So if you could tell me more, could you please tell me what black and brown means to you? Because I just wanted to check because sometimes it's, mm -hmm. you know, Middle Eastern are considered brown or Middle Eastern are considered white, depending on who you ask and the version of the census you're going to have. And, right. and so she responded, um, uh, black or, or brown uh, is not something you can understand or something along those lines, right? Hmm. And so right. I knew, I knew that there was something there that I needed to address. And I'm a learner. 
and I just love learning. And so I said, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. I have navigated those things intuitively for a long time, but now I'm actually going to get the eight month certificates from Georgetown in diversity and inclusion, because I know about the brain, I know about management, I know about startup. Now I want to know about those frameworks applied to DEI to see whether I've been doing the wrong thing all those all those years where I'm diverse right. and work by intuition or whether I can get better at this and integrate it into my career and leadership coaching practice. Wow. So I arrived in the program, which was of course, February, 2020, which, you know, it starts <laughs> there. And then uh, yeah. racial speaking was a very interesting spring uh, and full of, uh, of, of, um, such rampant injustice that it was a really emotional experience for all the 17 of us that started this thing online. Mm -hmm. And so the first wow. class and the second class, I started being put in breakout rooms with the other white ladies in the program. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so at some point I had to say to the faculty members, like, is there a reason why I always hang out with the allies and not with the people of color? Because let yeah. me tell you a little bit more about my background, just in case. Right. And there I had placed again with I'm an ally and not a person of color. Mm. So yeah. it came yeah. several times. And it's been really interesting in the past year because people are not sure in the US where to put me. And sometimes I am the innocent bystander of a pretty blatant, horrible, you know, statements made, mm -hmm. wink, mm -hmm. wink, you know what I mean. And yeah. then I, I become this crusader of saying, no, no, you need to tell me what you mean by this, because let me tell you a little bit about my background, to which, of right. course, there is a, a number of resistance points that we can address later yeah. in our conversation <laughs> when people get caught in their uh, own racism. It's got to be some interesting conversations for sure. Yes, wow. fascinating. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I think uh, what I learned, what I love about what you shared and what I think we can all benefit from is you're, you're a lifelong and really a life-wide learner. You're always learning. And I think we've been really promoting this. One of the ways that we can create a more just and equitable, equitable, equitable world is to really focus on learning, learning about other people's lived experiences, uh, being very curious, the way you mentioned curiosity. It seems like a really key to all of this because uh, the learning never stops. Uh, yeah. I'm a, black, I'm a black male, but still there's things that I don't know and I have to better understand. So I, I love the fact that you're continuing to just learn and you went the step extra that you really didn't need to and got an actual certificate in DEI. That's the powerful message. So thank you. And great, I think you example. know, I, I think that I want to give a plus one to two things that you just said. And I think that's one of the things that uh, two of the things that I think are really important in our field of DNI and of uh, leadership development, right? Um, we, our brain functions with a very strong confirmation bias. And most of us, especially when we are in mid or advanced careers, we've been very effective by adopting mental and emotional shortcuts to confirm and move forward with good decisions. And they work for many times, you know, our colleagues might say, oh yeah, that's a great strategy. We should adopt it and move. Right. It doesn't right. work in all dimensions, especially not the interpersonal one, especially when you have 
really difficult topics that you want to tackle where people bring a lot of emotions to those. Because mm -hmm. when you say emotions, you mean ego. When you mean ego, you mean uh, entrenched beliefs. And limiting beliefs, pushing against those limiting beliefs requires to keep your ego in check and to listen to understand somebody else's perspective instead of to listen to confirm your own perspective. Not mm -hmm. easy, right? Yeah. And so that learning process that you mentioned is learning to understand and to grow versus learning to confirm. And that goes mm -hmm. back to the discipline it takes to have a growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset. Right. Because it's not only what you listen to, but it's how you are going to integrate that new knowledge to change your head and your mind about something. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's one of the issues we're having today, where a lot of people are very uncomfortable about conversations about race, about conversation about women, about conversation about uh, inequities of access to education, healthcare, the vaccine as it rolls out. And people mm -hmm. are, are trying to have a nice cop out to say, I'm getting educated, right? And then you ask yeah. them, oh, what is the last article you read and how has that changed your mind? Mm -hmm. Unable to say anything. You're, eh, you're not reading much then, huh? Uh, but right. that's a different conversation. But um, I think what you said is so important to say that we need to continuously learn, but learn about what we are doing to change our own minds, our own mm -hmm. emotion and our own ego to become more receptive to other people's experience. Mm -hmm. Because I think we need to stop uh, highlighting our intent as the perfect excuse. I didn't intend to hurt you. Right. I didn't intend, right. I didn't mean to blah, blah, blah. Great, but guess what? You still had an impact of someone on someone that was suboptimal. And the mm -hmm. impact you had is more important than the intent yeah. that you had, right? So true. And that's so important for everybody to understand that true learners understand acknowledge the impact they have on others and learn from it so that they don't have that impact again, no matter how well intentioned they were in the mm -hmm. beginning of the process. And then yeah. the second point that you were making that's super important, it's not because you're diverse that you're good at diversity. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of your own blind spots that you might uh, find yourself triggered by. There are a lot of different things that are coming your way that you might externalize with the lens of diversity that others might interpret in different ways. And again, those emotions are going to catch up with you. And it's not because you yeah. have a diversity of experience that everybody within your diversity group will have the same experience. And mm -hmm. therefore, to be sure to define things and to agree on things in a way that is uh, with openness and with uh, a co-creative growth mindset spirit is especially important when we're talking about racial issues in different areas of the US where, as you know, uh, being black in uh, the Northeast is very different than being black mm -hmm. in Southern California, which is very different than being black in uh, Alabama. Right, yeah, we're always learning. I, and I think, well, you know my family and mm -hmm. <laughs> We have some interesting learning conversations every time we sit down together because I'm the only one that really brings a black male experience to the conversation. My wife brings a white European 
European experience. We have two biracial kids. And so there's so much to learn from each one of us and how we see the world. And if you add on top of it, our Ecuadorian uh, daughter-in-law and our Dominican son-in-law, it just creates this rich conversation. And so for me, I couldn't think of a better way to learn just being amongst people with so many different experiences. And sometimes I have to check myself because I assume you know, most white people should know these things. And I may not have the patience and my wife reminds me to see it in a little bit of a different perspective. So mm -hmm. I think that's where we are, learning from each I other. Think, yeah, I think that's yeah. super important. And I think the, the, the frustrating part, right? It takes time and multiple repetitions because mm -hmm. you've been married, I don't know, more than 20 years and your wife still has to remind you of this, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, because yeah. we have those mental shortcuts that feel comfortable to us that we need to be reminded might not be comfortable for others. Mm -hmm. And so it's a permanent journey of keeping that ego in check and to taking the time to clarify before moving forward with somebody else. Right. And I think so that's I'm super important in DNI today because companies want to do things super fast, mm -hmm. but they have not started the first step of really truly listening before they want to act. Right, right. So I'd love, Marim, to get some advice from you if you think in terms of intersexuality and I think it could be a more, it could be a bigger part of corporate DNI initiatives. We can have more conversations around this, but also from an advice perspective, what would you give an individual who may not have this similar background as yours, but somewhat similar and mm -hmm. in, in, in navigating the headwind, what, what advice would you give allies who want to be better supportive of people who are multidimensional like yourself? And then what should organizations, the third question is what should organizations be doing more of mm -hmm. to, 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 to make things better when you look at it through the lens of inter intersexuality? Wow, so how long do you have? It's probably gonna be like a two week retreat conversation on each of those uh, questions. I really appreciate yeah. them because they're timely and urgent. So I'm gonna barely scratch the surface on, on all three. So it, to me, right? Um, I always think in innovation, who benefits from the lack of transparency? Right, because generally, if somebody in something needed to be transparent, it would be by now with all the access to data that we have. Right. Right. Um, so I do believe that in the U.S. but around the world, uh, the confusion and the lack of accountability benefits the majority group. Mm -hmm. It's always been the case, and that exists for. Uh, racial disparity that exists for gender and uh, sexual identity disparities that exist for SES, immigration status, veteran status, stability types and levels, whether they're visible or invisible, right? right? So what I've seen a lot of organizations do is this valuable exercise, but uh, it, it sorts of looks like whack-a-mole where there's those multiple dimensions of diversity and which one are we paying attention to now? So we have like uh, Black History Month and Women's Month and then uh, uh, Gay Pride and all those things. And they are really trying to have uh, an impact on those dimensions in isolation without uh, taking into account, I'm not saying it's easy, 
uh, I'm just saying it's needed to take into account the intersectionality of the multiple mm -hmm. cuts and compounding effect of each of those dimensions within an individual living, breathing, working at their organization. And that's really the, the, the um, that's why it's still needed for us to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in our field. Because diversity is necessary, not sufficient. It's not right. because you have people who look a certain way that they will be welcomed and truly listened to for their contribution in an organization. It's not because you have people who look in, in, in and diversify that they will have the same promotion pattern in the organization. And I think that that confusion and that whack-a-mole exercise requires a lot of, of, of courage from leadership to say, in our company, we cannot do it all. But mm -hmm. in the next two years or three years, we're going to pay attention to those two. And this is what we're going to do. And this is what we're going to hold everybody accountable to do. Right. And it's going to go way further than showing up on the pride float once a year. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. so I think that there are efforts. I'm not saying there are not. And there are valuable efforts when a leader shows up on a pride float once a year. But then it has to be accompanied by maybe... Uh, a monthly showing up at the ERGs for um, uh, the pride at and then name the company mm -hmm. and really mm -hmm. say, this is what we're doing to push the ball forward. This is what we're doing to integrate that into performance reviews for our leadership. This is the 360 anonymous uh, survey that you can um, that you can fill out to see, are you seen, are you heard, are you ignored, are you feeling a sense of belonging that you're describing earlier? And that's mm -hmm. directly linked to their performance review and their bonus at the end of the year. Yeah. That would be the holy grail, yeah. right? Uh, of doing those intersectional dimensions of you show it, you live it, and you get accountable by it via a uh, mix of anonymous and non-anonymous um, uh, surveys with the weight of the marginalized populations not knowing not known by you and mm -hmm. have the the opacity where it belongs which is protecting marginalized individual in that process right that would right. be for the the organizations right that would be my dream Love it. Uh, Love for it. the organization <laughs> great advice now uh, in terms of organizations I look up to and where I find a ton of wisdom, um, I love Management Leadership for Tomorrow that's uh, run uh, by John Rice. Mm -hmm. uh, and this has been an organization that promotes uh, diversity and inclusion for business talent. Uh, mm -hmm. I first learned about them in 2007, 2008, because I worked at uh, the Kelly School of Business as an MBA career coach and or marginalized students uh, from uh, diversity of racial and ethnic backgrounds came funded by either, uh, well, have, have helped uh, taking the GMAT or uh, have received partly funding either to MLT or the Graduate uh, Consortium for the Study of Management, which provides uh, scholarships to marginalized students. Mm -hmm. And so those two organizations, um, 
I, I highly respect. And whatever John Rice writes is very targeted, super well done. And he's read uh, a really good article for The Atlantic. He has many, but one that stays in my mind because it was so timely about the three levels of racism in the US. And if mm -hmm. our companies were to implement all three of those levels in their operating procedures, I think we'd be in a much better place in terms of racial equity in corporate America. So that was in yeah. the Atlantic. Yeah. Another organization I look up to is the Forte Foundation for Women in Business. They have wonderful uh, podcasts about women advancing in leadership roles in business that can be transposed to many different dimension, dimensions of diversity. And they have blended more of the intersectionality you're describing here between women and racial uh, dimensions of diversity. And their mm -hmm. blog, their events are really, really high quality. And the third one is uh, the DHRC. I really follow what they're doing in terms of sexual orientation, sexual identity in the workplace, mm -hmm. especially their amazing advocacy uh, efforts for, uh, for states to implement and abide and comply with the new laws at, at hand along with the, uh, the ACLU. So I, I follow mm -hmm. those three on a regular basis. And I think pushing, continuing to push for regulation at the local state and federal level is the only way where the transparency you and I wanna see will actually get implemented. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, awesome. And that's only in the U.S., right? Because in, in the yeah. other countries, then yeah. we are in a whole boatload <laughs> of other things. And then I want to address really quickly, if I may, the ally um, question. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, listening to understanding, listening to understand the impact of your words on others, it starts with that. Mm -hmm. And then the second piece is amplifying the voice of marginalized populations on your team. Right. And uh, this was done very well by the women in the Obama administration cabinet. And there was a wonderful article on this. I can't remember which publication it was. It was either the New York Times or the Washington Post, where they were describing how, you know, you would be in a high level meeting and then one woman would say something and then it would be forgotten. And then the guy picks up the same idea, says it, and now he's believed, mm. right? Yeah. How many times have you been in a meeting where that the racial dimension has the same impact. The women dimension has the same impact. The immigrant dimension has the same impact. We've all been mm -hmm. in those situations. So they've taken up the habit, the habit of amplifying, boosting the voice of that person by saying, very good point, I plus one this. I think your idea of blah, 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 blah is very much needed and we should uh, talk about this more. Mm -hmm. You can awesome. do that and you can put your weight behind someone. It doesn't cost you anything, but it works. It really does. Right. And then the third part is uh, hold people from the majority accountable. Mm -hmm. And a magic word for that, that I started using after March, because I, I started to be really, really exhausted by the number of times where I had to say to people, eh, you might not want to say that quite this right. way or, you know, eh, is I disagree or this has not been my experience. So it's non-confrontational. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been my experience, but at least you're telling them to their face that it's probably not something you can agree with. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I Love it. Uh, And then you can say, you know, I, I, it hasn't been my experience. If they want to get into it, you can stop it right there if you don't have the energy, because quite frankly, I, I my energy weans uh, when I have to <laughs> come back to people in quite this way for, you know, most of my days. 
Yeah. And I would yeah. just say, you know, I, I really appreciate your perspective and want to encourage you to maybe uh, look at, at other perspectives and experiences. I'll send you an email with a few things you can read that I would love to discuss with you once we have the chance. Mm -hmm. Then I have my prepared email and uh, resources and, and, and an article so that I don't spend the whole time uh, educating right. someone, but at least I made a point to say, hasn't been my experience, happy to discuss further at a later time. Here are a few resources that I would love your perspective on. Mm -hmm. I love it. Thank you so much. You answered those three questions very well. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I hope this would be helpful to your, your audience. It's always such yeah. a pleasure chatting with you. And uh, thank you for putting those together because they are not easy conversations, but they are very, very much needed. Yeah, we really appreciate you sharing your story. First of all, your life story is amazing to get to where you are today. And also for not being silent. I think you're in a new unique position and you mentioned some of those conversations that you're a part of and we just appreciate you speaking up and helping hold better hold people accountable and then also all the work you're doing for the next generation of leaders possibly in organizations you know you're you're there working with the younger minds and so we appreciate giving them a great lens to use to look out not only about careers but also how to create a, a great place for everyone so Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. And I think, you know, that I, I consider as, as I'm Swiss, right? I consider the university space as a coach to be a neutral space, mm -hmm. right? And so yeah. we serve all of our alums for life. So I often have alums who are living the microaggressive ecosystems that you and I know exist, mm -hmm. whether intended or not. And for them to be able to call their career center at their alma mater, to say I'm leaving this now, what do I do? It's a All very right. precious and neutral ground for me mm -hmm. to be at. And I don't have an agenda, not like HR at your organization. I don't have uh, coaches that are invited in a uh, take care of that PIP type of person. I'm just yeah. here to help understand and help you navigate it. And I really do think that both of our students and our alumni populations really appreciate that mm -hmm. uh, that service that we're able to fortunately provide them with. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for doing that. And uh, I look forward to when things get better, we can have our coffee conversations in Georgetown. Uh, I think we've given everyone now a chance to kind of see what those conversations are like <laughs> over, the, over the last 60 minutes or so. So thank you so much, Marim. And uh, you just enjoy the rest of 2021. And I'm sure we'll be in touch, but we really appreciate you spending time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Keep going with those conversations. And yes, so looking forward to being on the other side of this so that we can, whether social distancing or not, continue yeah. having uh, those conversations. It's been a pleasure and uh, I look forward to many more. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.